0: Welcome, everyone. My name is Susan Fratsky, and I'm a senior policy analyst with the international program here at the Migration Policy Institute. Thank you so much for joining us today for our webinar on pushing borders outward the state of asylum globally five years after the EU Turkey deal. I'll start with a few housekeeping notes before we jump into our discussion. First, if you have any technical problems, please email events at migrationpolicy.org or call 202 one two oh two-266-1929. We will have a question and answer period at the end of the call. There won't be a voice question and answer, but we welcome you to type any questions you have as the discussion is going on into the QA or into the chat box, or you can email them to events at migrationpolicy.org. You may also tweet your questions to either at migrationpolicy or use the hashtag MPI discuss. We are delighted to have an impressive panel with us today to discuss the state of asylum globally. We are now just about a month out from the five-year anniversary of the EU-Turkey Statement. And today, we'll be looking at how the EU-Turkey Statement has helped to reshape access to asylum in Europe, but also what the statement indicates about trends and access to asylum globally. And we're happy to have a, a panel here that really um, reflects that global perspective. We're joined by Otilia Belts, who is is the Senior Vice President for Global Issues at the Robert Bosch Stiftung. Uh, we also have Andrew Seely, who is our President here at MPI, uh, and Hannah Behrens, who is Director of MPI Europe, and Tsion Tadesse Abebe, who is a Senior Researcher with the Migration Program at the Institute for Security Studies, and Mustafa Aliou, who is the Managing Director of Refugees Seeking Equal Access at the Table, or our seat. I'm also very happy to share that this webinar marks the launch of a new initiative that's being uh, done by us at the Migration Policy Institute with the Robert Bosch Stiftung. More information about the initiative Beyond Territorial Asylum, Making Protection Work in a Bordered World can be found at our website, migrationpolicy.org. And I'll now hand it over to Andrew, who will share with you uh, a bit more about the initiative and also offer a few comments to get us started this morning. Andrew?
1: Thank you, Susan. Um, and thank you for your leadership on this initiative. Susan has been the driving force uh, on the MPI side in, in putting this together. And we really appreciate uh, your leadership on this. Um, we're also immensely pleased to be working with Robert bosch on on this initiative together. Um, it's no secret that asylum systems and even refugee systems are under immense stress at the moment. We saw a bit of a seesaw on Friday in the United States on the refugee cap, which was uh, perhaps symptomatic of some of these concerns and it ties to things that are going on at the US-Mexico border, which are symptomatic of some of the issues going on in the asylum system or lack of an asylum system um, at the US-Mexico border. Um, We hope in this project to be looking at what options are out there, not just for traditional refugee uh, resettlement countries in North America, Europe and Australasia, but also the countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, Africa, the Middle East and Asia, which have become the major destinations for for asylum seekers around the world, Um, asylum seekers and those seeking refuge. Um, Our hope in this project and this initiative that we're doing together is to offer some hope and some original thinking about future directions based on real world experience. Our sense is there are a lot of important experiences out there where people are innovating, even though the narrative right now is of a restriction of asylum, of territorial-based asylum. There's in fact a great deal of innovation going on in terms of how people are giving refuge to those fleeing persecution and the breakdown of state order um, in, in countries nearby. And to be able to build on some of those experiences as we, we think about the next steps in a world where humanitarian protection remains as important as ever, if not more so. Um, with that, let me turn it over to Otilia bouts the Senior Vice President for Global Issues at Robert Bosch Stiftung. Uh, Otilia.
2: Thank you so much, Andrew, for your kind words and and your much valued partnership. And a very warm welcome to all of you on behalf of the Robert Bosch Stiftung. Today's discussion is very critical and timely indeed, and I'm excited to have such great speakers here at the panel today. The EU-Turkey agreement is indicative for a set of larger trends in the international protection system. The decline of territorial asylum is arguably amongst the most critical challenges that the protection system faces today. And the EU-Turkey deal has had a ripple effect on the system and this very trend. The effective ability to climb asylum at borders, a pivotal pillar of the protection system has become increasingly and literally out of reach at a time when scale, scope and complexity of displacement is overstretching the system. And this situation does not only have an effect on individuals access to asylum and protection, but also impinges on global solidarity with forced migrants and with their hosts. And this solidarity has already been severely under strain, the pandemic will likely further exacerbate the situation. We will discuss the EU-Turkey agreement and its consequences in more detail in a moment with our distinguished speakers yet allow me to jump a step ahead and provide some reflections on some larger strategic directions that we can and should be considering when being faced with these challenges. The new initiative of the Migration Policy Institute and the Robert bosch Stiftung is also very much about thinking beyond, identifying and evaluating viable and long-term solutions that can address some of the system's most pressing issues. And I would like to emphasize uh, two aspects. Firstly, we have to broaden the toolkit of solutions to displacement in order to provide solutions at scale. In this context, resettlement and especially community sponsorship schemes, for example, have proven to be a very useful addition to existing measures. In general, as we often experience the waxing and waning of political will, civil society has an important role to play. And secondly, There's an increasing recognition that we have to design systems that further enhance the agency of those affected by displacement in finding solutions for their situation. This means, for example, to enable meaningful participation by refugees in decisions that affect their lives, but also to better recognize and support the role of refugee-led organizations play in situations of displacement. This is likely not only make our policies more legitimate, but also to render them more effective. The aspiration of our founder, entrepreneur Robert Bosch to alleviate hardship, to contribute to peace and stability and to promote respect for human dignity and the full potential of every individual still guides the foundation's actions today. And this is also motivation and ambition for us to contribute to promoting new policy ideas, including those that can help prevent extremely strenuous situations of extended limbo, such as those that too many migrants and asylum seekers experience on the Greek islands and elsewhere. Five years on from the EU-Turkey deal, there's important lessons to be learned. And I'm very much looking forward to today's discussion. Most importantly, however, I'm very pleased that this is only the beginning of a three-year initiative launched today for which we will bring together a group of leading thinkers and disseminate forward-looking ideas. And I would like to thank you, Andrew and the EMPIRE team for embarking on this journey together with us. And I hope that everyone taking part in this event today will follow us through this journey. Thank you very much. And with this, I hand over back to Susan.
0: Thank you so much, Atilia. Uh, with that, we'll jump into the discussion portion of our webinar today. And we'll start with Hannah Behrens, uh, our director at MPI Europe, um, who will be talking to us about the EU Turkey statement. So, Hannah, um, we look forward to hearing from you about um, the, the current state of implementation, but also what are some of the, the lessons learned from the statement and how has it informed and shaped Europe's asylum policy more broadly? Hannah?
3: And uh, yes, thank you, Susan. Um, the EU and its member states are, are really quite keen to continue this uh, agreement Um, it was largely responsible for a drastic drop in arrivals in Europe uh, where in 2015 and 2016 about 2 million uh, asylum seekers and migrants arrived and so as a result uh, of this for example in Greece in 2015 they still registered about 860,000 arrivals Uh, And then later on that number dropped in 2016 to 36,000, so a drastic drop um, before reaching um, about 75,000 again in 2019. So the continuation of this agreement was also very much part of the meeting of the EU leaders, Ms Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel, uh, last week when they met with uh, Mr Erdogan in Ankara. Uh, some of the key uh, discussion points at the time were also the financial support for Turkey. So um, the 6, million, 6 billion uh, e- euros that was assigned or earmarked for this agreement have all been now um, yeah, uh, contracted. Um, and now the question is whether uh, further funding could be secured. And another part concerns the kind of frustrations that Turkey has for the moment, where particular parts of the EU Turkey deal, such as, Uh, visa liberalisation and upgrading of the customs agreement, but also accession conversations to the EU have not been addressed or actually been uh, at a standstill since 2016. Let's have a look at at the state of externalisation of asylum policy in, in Europe. So um, the external dimension of the common European asylum system was quite um, inexistent before, um, beyond, for example, financial support to, to first countries of asylum or awareness campaigns uh, in arranging in countries to inform people not to, to move to Europe if they have a, a merely uh, economic profile um, as they would then have to be returned, those kind of elements were there. But that, that that kind of weakness, the weakness of this external dimension of the common European asylum system was painfully exposed in 2015 and 2016. And so if we then fast forward to anno 2021, we can see that this dimension and the idea to really cooperate more broadly with third countries to better manage flows to Europe is now at the heart and center of EU's plans. If you just look at the EU Pact on Migration that was adopted in September 2020, that's really quite evident. And so the motivation for this was really um, this should not happen ever again. We cannot have uh, this kind of chaos as we observed at the time. Um, And in that respect, we want more control of who enters, stays and returns uh, from Europe. And uh, another motivation was, of course, that this was one of the few areas uh, in Europe where member states still agreed as to how to tackle issues related to asylum. So if we look today, we can see that many of the pillars of that make up the idea or the concept of externalization can be traced in EU's asylum policy. So let's have a look at some of those pillars. Firstly, uh, the idea of to really try and address the root causes of, of movement. So and the EU is working together with development authorities and development banks to really better understand and work with the link between migration and development. Another pillar is discouraging onward movement by either supporting first countries of asylum to better care for the refugees on their territory or or and Uh, by building up the national asylum systems in those countries through projects, through funding. And then there's, of course, a pillar of trying to prevent onward movement. So, for example, the EU-Turkey deal really uh, incorporated that there would be the expectation of the border authorities of Turkey to to prevent persons from, from moving to the border. Uh, And that's a very important one uh, that they're counting upon. The fourth pillar is resettlement and legal pathways to really invest in that and to try and upscale the quota, for example, in relation to to resettlement, but also to work together with third countries to see whether they can um, upscale legal migration opportunities for work and study for third country nationals. And then when it comes to access to asylum So for the moment, um, the cornerstone is still very much if you set foot on EU territory, uh, you have the right to apply for asylum. So um, as Otilia also referred to this idea of territorial asylum, and yet we're seeing that um, that idea is starting to show cracks. Um, The EU pact already, if you look at some of the proposals outlined there, toys with this idea of the principle of non-entry in border regions. So the idea that you have never really set foot on ground and that you can also not apply or, or claim the rights that are um, tied to that. Um, being on the territory. And next to that there's a group of countries, a growing group of countries, the Visegrad countries, the Denmark, um, Austria, UK, but also political parties and other member states that want to do away with spontaneous arrivals and only have uh, persons apply for asylum and then resettlement to Europe uh, from third countries. So what are some of the lessons? And that's the third uh, question we may want to, to raise here. What are some of the lessons learned from the agreement? Um, there's a number of ones. First, there's a the question of sustainability. Um, how fragile is our asylum system if the other party unilaterally decides not to hold up their part of the deal? We saw that last year in March when uh, Turkey uh, opened the border with Greece and a number of many actually moved to the border and try to cross there. So can we truly say that it will never happen again if we do not at the same time invest in our crisis response mechanisms, in domestic asylum systems and legal pathways? Maybe you're just buying time rather than really working on a solution if you're focusing only on the external component. Then there's the issue of costs. Um, not only in terms of the budgets reserved for Turkey to deal with the 4 million refugees on its soil and the capacity building that needs to happen, but there's also the political costs that are tied to externalization. So what are we willing to put on the table in the areas of trade, in the area of foreign affairs, in order to attain um, our internal migration ambitions. There's numerous examples of how North African countries have really played the migration card when trade agreements had to be negotiated and renegotiated, um, allowing, for example, migrants or asylum seekers to cross the borders with the EU, such as happened in the Sota Melilla enclaves when uh, Spain and Morocco were negotiating a particular deal. So does it really also weaken our starting point in other negotiations. Um, How easy is it to ask or demand that Turkey stops um, drilling, for example, for natural gas in waters claimed by Greece uh, and other elements? And then uh, what are some of the implications maybe finally in terms of um, border or transit or first application states? If we look at Greece, but also Mexico, um, it still requires sufficient investment in the capacity of migration authorities to really quickly process persons. If we look at Greece, it had to really build up their, its asylum system from scratch in 2016. And that in a record time, it had to adopt new laws to declare, for example, Turkey as a safe third country. It had to set up new procedures, a fast track border procedure for those arriving from Turkey, especially Syrian refugees. And it had to really build Um, or secure accommodation for thousands arriving every day um, and who were not allowed to travel onwards to the mainland because of the geographical limitations that the EU-Turkey deal had set. So this really resulted, as as Otili also referred to, leaving many um, in limbo situations for a prolonged period of time and leaving many in very overcrowded, unsanitary um, situations. And that also asks them the question of how or begs the question of how long can we also count on the patient hospitality of the the local uh, population. So the the impact also on human lives has been immense and others in the the webinar will outline that not only for those who were stuck on the Greek islands, but also for uh, refugees in Turkey themselves who still struggle to access uh, the labour market and the education system there. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much, Hannah. Uh, I think it's it's important the, the the points that you've made about how the EU Turkey statement, while we think of it as being. Uh, Focused on sort of the the Greece and and uh, Turkish border and the Aegean and the management of um, of arrivals in that geography, it actually is part of a a broader um, trend within EU asylum policy and and has seen asylum and migration become really threaded through the EU's relationships with many other countries outside of that particular region um, and. To that effect, I'd like to actually turn now to Tsion, who will be talking to us about um, how the EU-Turkey Statement and the broader effects that it's had on the externalization of EU asylum policy have been felt in Africa. And also, um, in addition to the, the sort of practical implications of the, the push towards externalization, what some of the normative implications have been? So Tsion, if you could also um, share with us sort of where you, how you see the effects on um, support for, for and, and discourse around asylum and refugees in Africa.
4: Thank you, uh, Susan. Uh, good morning and afternoon to all panelists and the audience. Uh, first, I would like to thank the Migration Policy Institute for inviting me to share my perspectives in this important uh, webinar. My intervention focuses on trends of forced displacement policy and practice in eastern Horn of Africa in the last five years. I'm basing my intervention on my previous and ongoing research I have done on the Global Compact on Refugees, GCR, including a draft report I'm putting together on behalf of UNHCR, which I believe will be included in the upcoming State of the World's Forcibly Displaced Report. Two key trends have been recently observed in forced displacement policy and practice in the East and Horn of Africa region. One, the promotion of inclusion of refugees, and two, diminishing asylum space. Here, it's important to highlight that the East and Horn of Africa region is an important site in relation to the African forced displacement policy and practice. This is because the region, the region hosts one of the highest number of forced displaced in sub-Saharan Africa, that is, Uh, uh, 4.3 million of the 6.3 million refugees, and 9.5 million of the 18.5 million internally displaced persons are in this region. Further, six of the eight, the Global Compact on Refugees, GCR, rollout countries' situations, namely Djibouti, Ethiopia, Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda, and the Somali situation are in this region. So first, refugee inclusion is one of the two trends observed. In this respect, the region has seen the development of new policies and revision of existing frameworks to promote the inclusion of refugees in national development plans. Although some of the policies predate the adoption of the Global Compact on Refugees in 2018, for most part, such policies began to evolve after the adoption of the comprehensive Refugees Response Framework, CRRF, in 2016. CRRF, as you all know, is part of the GCR. In this respect, the experience of Uganda provides a very good example. Uganda adopted its refugee and host population empowerment (ReHope) strategy in 2017, which in a sense updated its 1999 self-reliance strategy. The ReHOPE strategy supports Uganda's integration of refugees into national development plan of the country. In 2019, Ethiopia also adopted a revised refugee proclamation granting refugees the right to work, access social services, register their vital events, and integrate with the host community. Kenya's Kylobe Integrated Social and Economic Development Program is also another flagship initiative in this respect. Further to the national policies, two key reasons contribute to the trend of refugee inclusion in the region. The first is the presence of active regional organizations with a strong interest in forced displacement policy and practice. In this regard, the role of the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGAD, is key, as exemplified by its adoption of the 2017 Nairobi process and its subsequent declarations to facilitate durable solutions to those source displaced in the region the expansion of stakeholder platforms is the other factor which refers to the active involvement and participation of new actors to contribute to the effort of refugees self-reliance in the region this includes financial institutions such as the world bank the european union is also one of the major partners The EU Emergency Trust Fund, for example, supports different initiatives in the region, including the resilience building and creation of economic opportunities in Ethiopia. Diminishing asylum space is another trend observed in the region, as seen in the experience of Kenya and Tanzania. In the past, the two countries had won international acclaim for their generosity in terms of Giving opportunities to refugees, but recently they, some signs have been shown in terms of their sliding into the other end. Citing national security threats and terrorist threats, Kenya has re, in recent years tightened its generous policy towards refugees, spanning over the last four decades. This is manifested in the government's threats to close the Dada refugee camps, as you know. And the government of Tanzania has also put heavy pressure on Burundian refugees to return involuntarily and when conditions at home are not conducive for return. This led to the repatriation of 90,000 of them between January 2017 to August 2020. Facilitation of refugees inclusion through the GCR has faced different challenges in the region. For this event, I will highlight one of them. This is a failure to reach a common ground on refugee responsibility sharing, burden sharing between refugee hosting countries and donors. Donors, including those from the European Union, expect host countries in the region, in Eastern Horn of Africa, to start facilitating inclusion of refugees in national systems. While host countries argue that this requires institutional and policy reform that place additional pressure on taxpayers' money. Externalization of EU's asylum policies partly drives the push by donors, particularly those from the European Union. This is part of the overall attempt by the EU countries to deter the arrival of African refugees through partnering with third countries, African countries that are expected to integrate refugees. This approach led to the continuation of the approach you host, we fund. This poses a fundamental challenge, which is seen by many in the Eastern Horn of Africa region as a mere rhetorical stance, since most of the donors provide only short-term support, while the GCR implementation requires long-term financing. Considering the fact that refugee hosting countries in the region don't even have enough resources for their own nationals, they feel they are already doing a global public good by hosting refugees. This standoff is now met with another unprecedented challenge, the COVID-19 pandemic. In conclusion, refugee-hosting countries in the Eastern Horn of Africa countries and donors, including those from the EU, should find a common ground on responsibility and burden sharing, which requires a comprehensive approach. Addressing root causes, including conflicts and climate change, should be central, Factoring in the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic is important, of course, such a comprehensive approach is the only way to address forced displacement challenges in the East and Horn of
0: Africa region. Thank you and back to you, Suzanne. Thank you so much, Sion. Um, I think it's it's important the point that you highlighted around the um, the difference in expectations between um, what is uh, demanded on the part of donor countries and also as part of um, the the uh, broader push towards externalizing um, asylum obligations, um, and the difference between the the funds that are actually committed to support um, those initiatives and how that in turn um, impacts the the ability and willingness of the the governments who are already hosting the majority of the world's refugees to actually um, provide additional um, protections and and actually adjust policy frameworks um, and it's something that i think um, is important to bear in mind when we look at sort of how what the expectations are of, of governments in, in europe or north america or elsewhere as they they attempt to um, to uh, to encourage um, broader responsibility sharing. Um now Hannah in her comments had mentioned the role of um, of resettlement and also of um uh complementary pathways in uh this uh sort of broader externalization um of, of asylum policy in europe and those um have also been part of the the discussion here in north america so i wanted to turn to um to andrew now to bring us up to date with um, what the discussion is uh on the us-mexico border and uh sort of what um what we can expect to see uh in in the next few months and sort of what um what sort of new strategies we might be looking at as uh, the the U.S. administration and its partners in the region attempt to um, begin to reopen um, the the border and the asylum system, Andrew?
1: Thank you, Susan. Um, you know, let me say, Western Hemisphere has been something of an outlier in refugee and asylum issues. It was not a major topic of discussion. There were some notable exceptions um, with Mexico involved, with Guatemalan and Salvadoran. Refugee seekers in the 1980s and early 1990s, Ecuador, Venezuela, and a few other countries dealing with Colombian uh, refugees at different periods. But this has really changed. And and so before I say that to the U.S., let me say something about the Western Hemisphere in general, which is that we are seeing an incredible moment of experimentation, driven by necessity. Um, particularly the the flow, the large movement of Venezuelan. Uh, forced migrants and refugees, um, 5.4 million at least, if not more, most of them staying in the Western Hemisphere, has been a huge driver of this, but so has hundreds of thousands of Central Americans, um, many of whom are headed to the U.S., but many more, or many have also stayed in Latin America, particularly in Mexico and Costa Rica, um, as well as Cuban and Haitian uh, migrants and, and others from outside the hemisphere. So there's a large number of people moving for reasons and seeking protection elsewhere in the region. And we've seen a fair amount of experimentation. I mean, some countries have have used their asylum system. Mexico is one of those. We saw in 2019, 70,000 applications for asylum in Mexico. Mexico has a very high uh, asylum approval rate, um, almost 100% for Venezuelans, north of of 80% for Hondurans and Salvadorans. Um, but also a large number of Haitians and Cubans this year. There may be 80,000 or more asylum applications in Mexico this year. Um, and Costa Rica has had um, a huge number, 25,000 or more some years, um, primarily for Nicaraguans, but also Venezuelans and increasingly Cubans who would be headed to the United States but decided instead to go south to Costa Rica, um, usually entering in Nicaragua and then going south um, to seek asylum in, in Costa Rica. Um, and then Brazil has been quite active on the asylum front as well. We've also seen the use of regional mobility agreements, primarily by Argentina and Uruguay, primarily with Venezuelans. This is something we've seen in West Africa as well. I mean, this is a trend to keep our eyes open for because it is, it is big. We're, people who are going, you know, perhaps for reasons of se- seeking protection, but they're essentially using the instrument at hand, which is easiest to use, which is a regional mobility agreement. And um, and then we've seen a lot of use of regularization programs. The most ambitious was announced in January in Colombia um, to regularize 1.7 to 1.8 million Venezuelans for 10 years um, to give them a, a legal status. Um, but we've also seen in Peru, which actually started this off, um, Ecuador, Brazil, Trent, Tobago, Dominican Republic right now in Panama. And we've seen a huge tendency in all of these countries and with this I'll end this part, but but what I think is sort of unique and interesting, and Jessica Bolter, my colleague, and I've done some research on this together. Diego Chavez, who runs our Latin American initiative, is is the the fact that in most Latin American countries, people who come in have fairly wide access to labor markets, usually the informal sector, but but to labor markets and to public services, to education and healthcare particularly. And so, in addition to sort of legal access, which is what we often talk about. There has been sort of a, a, a bet on giving people de facto access to labor markets and public services. Now, the biggest topic of conversation, certainly in this city right now, is, is not the Venezuelan migration, though that may be the biggest topic in South America by far. But we are, you know, the conversations have turned towards the large flow of Central Americans, primarily from Honduras and Guatemala, headed north to the United States. We may be seeing the largest movement of people from Central America. Well, from any country at the U.S.-Mexico border in 20 years and the largest movement from Central America ever. There's a variety of causes. Um, Ariel Ruiz, my colleague, and I lay out a few of these in a foreign affairs article from last week, but the, you know, basically you could say it is long-term structural issues around employment, around climate events and climate change affecting agriculture, around rule of law and violence affecting the quality of people's lives and specific political persecution and persecution by gangs and drug dealers, accentuated by a particularly bad year um, because of COVID, where economies contracted significantly and and two hurricanes hit Honduras and and Guatemala and Nicaragua in November. So, And at the same time, I'm reheating U.S. economy and a change in U.S. administration. So a number of things are happening. The way I think the Biden administration is looking at this, and certainly the way we're we have talked about um, Ariel and Michael Tanco and I have talked about thinking about this, is as a layered approach to protection. And this is learns from the Turkey model, but also differs from it in some important ways. Which is thinking about number one, how do you think about in-country protection systems? There are internally just dis- laws on internally displaced people in Mexico and El Salvador. There's one being debated in Honduras. There are efforts done by NGOs to protect people within their own countries. So part of the the protection infrastructure starts at home in countries that have some ability to think about protection before people move and giving people an opportunity to stay. And, And that's often overlooked in these discussions because obviously it doesn't come into the international protection architecture, but it certainly does in the regional protection architecture, which is thinking about how governments like the United States and Mexico and Canada can support what goes on on the ground in these countries. Secondly, beginning to think about refugee resettlement um, and in-country processing as as an option, not as an alternative to asylum, but as an addition to asylum. Um, This has been done by a group of six countries through something called the Protection Transfer Arrangement, which has existed for a number of years now on a very small scale, um, which is identifying people through an NGO and consular network, international organization network, before they migrate, and trying to, to put them into the refugee system with six countries, the US, Canada, Brazil, Uruguay, Australia, and I'm missing one, um, as the recipient countries. Um, and often if people need immediate uh, protection, taking them to Costa Rica while they're, while they're processed for resettlement. So I think there's a, a lot of attempt to look at how you do this now, if people cannot be protected in home countries, how to protect them you know, before they migrate again, but through the refugee system which is something we had not done previously in in a large scale. Um, I think third is asylum systems in neighboring countries. As already mentioned, Mexico, Costa Rica are already carrying a lot of the burden. A lot of people would much rather stay in a nearby country. Um, There are opportunities to think about asylum systems within the Northern Triangle of Central America, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. These are probably not safe countries to think of large scale uh, asylum programs, but there are people who would prefer to stay in the country next door to where they live rather than even having into Mexico or Costa Rica or the United States. And so how to provide also some ability for those countries to have functioning asylum systems. Um, and then finally asylum at the US-Mexico border. And we can talk more about that later if you want, but our colleague Doris Meisner has written a lot about this, about how to make the US asylum system both more fair and more efficient in a way that people can get timely decisions um, that offer them protection in, in more or less real time in a few months rather than a few years. And so thinking about this as a layered approach, but then there's one other area to throw in, which is is also thinking about labor pathways and family reunification. And so I think these are areas, you know, and say, why, why are we talking about this in a protection conversation? Well, you know, a lot of people have mixed motives for moving, right? And and they may or may not qualify for asylum in any of the places along the way, but that doesn't mean they don't have protection needs. And so thinking about labor pathways as another way, primarily what the U.S. has are, is temporary seasonal work, um, making sure that those visas are available for people in Central America. Right now, there are very few people who have access to those visas. And so this is a question of thinking because we have an employer-driven system, how to encourage employers to look to Central America and make sure that those visas are facilitated provides also has benefits to protection. And there's also a restarting of something called the Central American Miners Program, which seeks to reunite minors who have family members, immediate family members, legally present in the U.S. So, a family unification area. So, how to begin? Think about these as parallel processes: labor migration, family unification, as parallel processes that are also important because people who seek protection often have economic needs. There are also people who who are who would prefer to go through the labor pathways or the family reunification may find that as a way that they can also resolve their protection needs, right? And so there's an interplay between these that that are really important to make sure that the the system works and make sure we're also not directing everyone in only into a protection pathway. Um, So let me just finish by saying that there is a, this is a hemisphere um, where a lot of experimentation is going on. There's a lot of questions about how you take innovation um, in places where it's happened like Colombia and Peru and, and making sure it is actually institutionalized because a lot of, of innovation is often ad hoc. And so how and how do you make sure it meets minimum criteria? And there are huge questions now in the region closest to the United States, Central America, Mexico, the US, or so the region I call Canada to Costa Rica, in thinking about how you create this layered texture approach to protection, but also a parallel approach that deals with labor migration and family reunification as, as multiple pathways that need to exist at the same time. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Andrew. And before we turn to our last guest, I just want to note we'll open the floor to Q&A in just a minute. We already have a few questions coming into the question and answer in the chat box, but um, please feel free to to add those over the next few minutes before we open the floor. Uh, So as we've heard from, apologies for the screaming in the background, it's just the toddlers, Um, nothing nothing to worry about. Um, But before we turn it over um, to, to Mustafa, I think Andrew's highlighted a number of really interesting innovations that have happened in this region. And Sion um, has also flagged uh, quite a lot of innovative thinking that's been happening around the GCR and the GCM, the Global Compact on Refugees, and and on migration, despite the implementation challenges they faced. And as Hannah mentioned, there's been a a lot of um, experimentation under the implementation of this new external dimension policy in Europe. Um, Mustafa, I'd love to hear from you about what the the role of Refugee Voices is in developing these um, innovative policies. We've already heard quite a lot about the interests of the the governments along the way, uh, but how can refugees be included um, in um, developing and implementing these new innovative policy approaches in a way that, as Otilia mentioned at the beginning, both um, increases the legitimacy of these policies and also increases their effectiveness and effectiveness to actually provide effective protection. Mustafa?
5: Thank you so much, and thank you for having me today, and I think um, it's interesting every time I hear the word innovation and then, um, you know, including refugees, part of it. For example, um, with, with my work as a refugee-led organization, we, we've often been called, like not only me, but many other refugee organizations, we, we've often been described as very innovative uh, um, actors when it comes to creating policies or contribute to new policies that are being created around complementary pathways or refugee integration in general. And I always often, my, my comeback is that the sad reality today is actually listening to people on the ground is innovation. We are not coming up with any kind of a new ideas or out of the box thinkings. So all what we're doing is that we're just with people on the ground, we're listening to them, we're collecting data, we're analyzing those data and then we're implementing what the people are telling us. So basically we're getting into the need. And unfortunately today, this is an innovation. Um, I think in in, in if I want to talk about our own experience in, in basically creating working with Talent beyond boundaries and here in Canada in 2017 to create kind of the conversation around the economic mobility pathways um, in a way which is kind of a labor mobility pathways to uh, refugees, we kind of often we heard from refugees on the ground like often you know, Mostly uh, policymakers and, and many other governments talk about refugees in a way is like you know, the, the, the most vulnerable. And yes, uh, when it comes to protection, we need to focus on the most vulnerable. This is not to be taken away and that should be the focus mainly on this. But we often go to other refugees who are not yet the most vulnerable, but they are on the way to become one, but then we don't see a lot of programming in it. And then how can we benefit from the skills? I think the, the other way is that my refugees start telling you that we need to talk about refugees um, in a way is that as um, um, like a skills and talk about refugees a little bit from different narratives and so talk about refugees that I am Uh, We are an opportunity, it's okay to talk about us as an opportunity, because that could be a solution for those to be resettled. Uh, Today is is a known fact that uh, refugees in hosting countries stays around uh, 22 years on average to be resettled. So it's just not okay today to tell refugees that wait till you become the most vulnerable and then at this point we should go and help you and then, you know, have you part of the program. We need to reshift those programs in general to include refugees who are the most vulnerable, but also those who are a bit in better situation. Not to say that there is no refugees vulnerable. I think all refugees are vulnerable today. I think the idea also the Complement Pathway, what's interesting about it is um, it actually uh, uh, laid the ground for including refugees. Today, we're talking about Complement Pathways as a humanitarian visas, as an education, community sponsorship, and labor mobility pathway. But one of the interesting things that happened or we've seen here in Canada, for example, the few, uh, like a story from a refugee who was resettled here under the labor mobility pathway. This refugee will become the community sponsor for his family. This refugee will be the applicant for family reunification. So also kind of a complementary pathways will by default include refugees into the process in terms of, you know, become the the, the future contributor to resettling refugees, which is starting with their families and and others. I think the importance of including refugees in a component pathways is, is one, definitely to legitimize the process. Second is that to avoid a trial by actually having a conversation uh, with refugees on the ground directly and by virtue, having a more effective uh, policies. Um, I think we can get a bit more into uh, um, the Q and A, and I can answer more questions. But I want to I want to really end end on this. Today, unfortunately, um, a few years ago, we we're talking about less than one percent resettlement for refugees. Today, we're talking about less than one zero one percent of refugee resettlement. Comfortive pathways might be a solution where, when refugees today feeling uh, stressed and uh, having that sense that the system is failing them, maybe uh, it's a way to um, go toward the citizen, the normal, not the policymakers, not the government, but toward refugees who are resettled, the the citizen of states, like the community sponsorship that happened. Maybe it's a way to increase it. The unfortunate today, and when we talk about the EU-Turkey deal, um, also kind of to, to point on the unfortunate fact today that at one point we are trying to pressure states to resettle more refugees. Today we're trying and it's very sad that to states like Denmark today, to tell them that please keep the refugees you have, don't return them to Syria. Um, with, you know, because the, the Danish citizen in the 40s were the one of the heroes of the world by saving most of the Jewish refugees population. And it's just today that we're struggling to tell the Danish, don't become the one that delivered refugees to what's so called today the Hitler of the day. So maybe that's just kind of you know a, a bit out of that, but it is a sad reality today. No matter what, like with EU deal or others and all of that, is that we need to step up. We need to do a bit more. It's a sad today that we're trying to convince countries that um, keep the refugees rather than just having the conversation to resettle more refugees. Um, And we do it in any way, whether a compliance pathways or um, any other ways. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Mustafa. We have quite a number of um, questions in the chat and in the Q&A. So we have about 15 minutes left um, for Q&A at the moment. We'll start off with a few of the questions, and I will um, pass it over to uh, to each of the panelists in turn to reply. If you have additional questions, please feel free to to pose them in the Q&A. If we don't have time to get through all of them today, um, we will uh, try to follow up as we can after the webinar. Um, So the first question that I have here, um, there there are two that uh, I think go to Hannah. Um, One is about embassy. Asylum. So the um, the questioner has asked that uh, we hear most often about um, refugees posing uh, asylum applications at the borders of Europe. Why don't we hear about them applying for asylum at embassies? And Andrew had talked a bit about these ideas of in-country processing in the context of um, North America and then the Central America situation. Uh, So the question to Hannah is: uh, Is embassy asylum something that's um, possible or part of the conversation in Europe? And the second question that's related to that. Um, was with regard to this layered approach that Andrew had outlined, um, that looks at uh, sort of in-country um, protection to in-country processing to resettlement and complementary pathways. And the questioner had asked whether or not something similar to that um, layered approach could be useful in Europe. Uh, so Hannah, I don't know if you want to um, jump in on, on those points.
3: Yes, thank you very much for these questions. Um, I think it's an an interesting question about uh, the possibility to to work with embassies. Um, There's been a number of of experiments, if we can call it, or uh, um, attempts in the past to do this. And each time, unfortunately, uh, the embassies concerned had to quickly close uh, their doors and close this opportunity because they had lots of people uh, queuing up at at the embassy um, to ask uh, for asylum. Um, so, so far, uh, what, what you can see in the EU is that a number of member states um, have this uh, discretionary opportunity um, that, for example, the state secretary or the concerned minister can decide to uh, give uh, visas to particular people who can then come to the country and then apply for asylum. So, for example, so Belgium has it, but that requ- that's often, um, as I said, at the discretion of the minister. And it's often for a limited number of people and in a particular situation, for example, it's used in in certain sponsorship programs. Um, That's why when the EU looked at it a few years ago, again, when they're thinking about externalization and regional disembarkation um, uh, projects and the like, they really wanted to work together with... Um, uh, third countries or a group of third countries to really have a more kind of regional approach where people could arrive, countries could work together, there would be a kind of a processing capacity. So it really has to be thought through in that kind of larger scale. It's not something that an embassy uh, in and of itself could actually uh, um, set up. Um, And then the layered approach um, that, that Andrew outlined Yes, I think that's already happening. I think the EU is working on these different kind of fronts, as I tried to outline uh, in in my intervention earlier. It's trying to uh, address root causes. It's trying to work together with um, first countries of asylum um, and also those in transit to try and support them, for example, when it comes uh, to border management. But um, we haven't gone that far as the US, for example, in saying that... um, those who want to apply for asylum uh, in the U.S. have to stay for a a period of time in Mexico while they await um, their uh, outcome on on their asylum. claim. I think that kind of step hasn't been set in in Europe. Um, There's pushes from it from certain governments, um, but that's not um, currently in place. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Hannah. Um, We had another question here with regard to how um external agreements are actually monitored and how the effects and compliance with these agreements are monitored. And I'd actually like to um to apply this to the the GCR and the GCM, which um Sion had talked about in her interventions and, and ask um Sion if you could share a little bit about how the, um, the implementation of, of GCM, and GCR, and actually the effects in the countries um, in the Horn region are actually monitored, how, um, how, uh, what is being done to, to ensure that um, the countries are following through with their obligations and also monitoring the effects um, with the communities that are actually impacted by these agreements?
4: Uh, Thank you, Suzanne. Uh, This is a very important uh, but difficult question uh, posed here, you know, because uh, the GCR, which uh, I referred to in my uh, uh, presentation, the Global Compact on Refugees, for instance, is a very huge process uh, that is bringing together the humanitarian and the development sector together for the first time so uh, through the gcr itself there are mechanisms to come together uh, to bring together the different stakeholders every two years every four years and discuss and monitor progress Uh, but the uh, the whole situation in my opinion is uh, beyond that in terms of uh, uh, process and the way we should look at it you know Uh, uh, is a very uh, uh, how can i say new broad uh, process ongoing uh, so uh, i think uh, in 2018 2019 uh, we uh, uh, we had the global refugees forum and uh, we expect uh, uh, after uh, 2 years uh, the first meeting to really assess progress is um Uh, really difficult, particularly due to the reason I highlighted linked to the standoff between the donors and uh, the the refugee hosting countries. But uh, uh, I think, you know, uh, after maybe we dealt with uh, the COVID pandemic, which has really uh, posed a serious uh, challenge to the whole process, uh, we might sit down and see uh, uh, and evaluate the process. But uh, at this point, to discuss about uh, uh, progress, accountability, what has been done, uh, uh, is really tough. Uh, uh, let me leave it uh, there, Susan. Uh, back to you.
0: Thanks so much, Sion. Um, there were a couple of comments in the chat that I just wanted to note. Um, one uh, was from a panelist who's noting that the Forced Migration Review ha- is publishing a feature on externalization for October 2021, if uh, anyone is interested in contributing to that. Um, another panelist had also asked specifically about um, the the papers that Andrew had um, mentioned in his comments um, and the analysis with regard to uh, the current situation and innovation Uh, at the U.S.-Mexico border. And uh, those, uh, the the comments that Andrew is drawing on are all a part of uh, papers that have been published on the MPI website. You can find them at migrationpolicy.org and also a recent article um, that he authored with our colleague Ariel in um, Foreign Affairs. Uh, There was also a a question for Andrew, um, which was asking about the protection uh, transfer arrangement and whether or not, what the advantages and disadvantages are of Uh, relying on a procedure like the protection transfer arrangement versus regular UNHCR processing for resettlement and sort of how that that process works. Um, And and another question, if I could add to that, um, one of the panelists or one of the um, questioners had noted that there's actually been an in-country processing regime operated by the U.S. and Cuba for a number of years, which worked quite well. Um, And whether or not that offers any lessons um, for uh, Europe or elsewhere as countries are considering um, implementing internal processing and country processing
1: um yes let me say actually the protection transfer arrangement does um is actually run by unhcr i should have said that with um the u.s as majorly involved but also canada brazil Uruguay, australia they just be the five countries right or i may be missing one it's either five or six um it is uh so unhcr is an essential part of that um and is a uh is really who keeps us together. The IOM also does some work in, in the actual logistics of it, and the Costa Rican government. Oh, the Costa Rican government, the sixth is is the essential partner in keeping um, people in Costa Rica if they need protection. There's a way to get people to Costa Rica. I think what's interesting about this is you know the conversation externalization has been so driven by externalization, external processing as an alternative to asylum. I think the argument here is that it's a complement to asylum. It's not that you don't do asylum. It is. You know, can you can we actually think asylum tends to privilege people that are able to pick up and move either are so desperate they have to move? There's absolutely no other alternative, but also for people who can move to the U.S. border or to to the borders of the European Union, it, it, people who have some mobility. Right. I mean, it's what favors people who have some resources and some mobility. Part of thinking closer to home is also how do you think about people who who get left behind in that? Right. So it's not an either or with asylum, but rather a a both and. Right. I mean, these are sort of layers because we've got to do all of these things in order to think about protecting people. But it does also have the advantage of of depressurizing the border. Right. I mean, that is also an advantage and it is also a way of winning over new constituencies for this. So it both addresses the need of those who are left out um, from asylum, but also addresses the need of those that are worried about pressures at, at borders. Um, the U.S.-Cuba deal is an interesting one. It is, it's been done, it was done at a time where there was high Cuban migration in the mid-1990s to the United States um, Through and it was done in, in, in coordination with some enforcement also, but also an agreement to take 20,000 people a year um, through what's called parole, which is sort of an administrative admittance to the United States um, in uh, a year, plus allowing Cubans to participate in the diversity lottery and then about, average about 5,000 a year have managed to come out that way as well. So you have about 25,000 people. What helped that is that there was a Cuban Adjustment Act at the time from 1969, which allowed any Cuban that got to the territory of the United States to then apply for a green card. And so people could be paroled in administratively, you know, and then get a green card once they got into the U.S. That's hard to do for other countries um, under our laws. But it's an interesting idea. And what you see in the case of Cuba In the case of Mexico, where where there's been a huge explosion of seasonal worker programs, um, about 250,000 Mexicans come every year to the United States in seasonal worker programs. Um, uh, And then a, a number of Mexicans come to the U.S. every year with green cards because of family unification because there's a large Mexican population that's legally present in the United States that are permanent residents and citizens because it's an older migration to the United States at this point. Um, So you have a lot of pathways that Mexicans come legally to the United States. You have pathways that Cubans have come legally to the United States. What you've seen is that irregular migration from those countries drops, right? Um, And and so this has been done without applying, um, uh, looking at these as protection pathways, but undoubtedly within these numbers are a number of people who might have sought protection otherwise. Um, and have found their ways through other legal pathways, and that's why I say that you know we should also be thinking of sort of a parallel, right? I mean, how do we think about protection pathways, family reunification, and labor pathways in parallel and as different doors that people can go through, depending? You know, people make choices about where they think they have the greatest opportunity, but also what their greatest motivation is for moving, even though they may be intertwined across all three of these.
0: Thanks, Andrew. Uh, we also had one of the, uh, the participants in the Q&A note that there was also the source country class in Canada, um, which operated for a long time and was similar to the protection transfer arrangement and um, allowed, for example, Colombian IDPs to actually access asylum and resettlement while remaining in country. So it's another example of the, the innovative strategies that um, Andrew has, uh, has mentioned. Um, we have time. We're going to go just a few minutes over. So we have time for one more um, round of questions and i have a a particular question here from mustafa and then a question to um to pose to everyone um mustafa we have a a questioner who's asking specifically about the role of cities in expanding complementary pathways and noting that cities have been some of the um the, the entities that have been most engaged and interested in supporting complementary pathways, and whether or not there's more that can be done to engage at the city level instead of focusing just on national governments. Um, in addition to that, I wanted to pose a, a final question to everyone. Um, we've had a few uh, questioners who have specifically um, noted that uh, many of the, the policies that have been implemented to externalize um, protection and externalize asylum can have high human costs. Um, and and questioners have been asking um, what uh, what specifically can be done to take those um, human costs into account and how those should be weighed against the interests of um, governments and uh, the, the um, interests that they feel in terms of the, um, the demands placed on them by their publics to provide um, orderly um, protection of borders and uh, to reduce uh, feelings of, of chaos and uh, sort of manage the, um, the border situation. Um, There was also one, just to to add to the list, one final question um, for Hannah uh, about what the future holds for the EU-Turkey deal and sort of what um, what you expect in terms of um, the the EU-Turkey deal going forward, given that there's a lot of political uncertainty in Europe today, especially around the the future uh, in Germany and uh, with elections coming up there in the fall. Um, So we'll turn to Mustafa first for the question about the role of cities and complementary pathways and then open up the floor to the um the rest of our uh, panelists uh to talk about how we sort of manage this um this balance of the human costs of these policies with um with the demands that have been placed on on governments mustafa
5: Yeah, thank you. Um, I think cities can have, um, and even smaller municipalities can have a great role in uh, playing into uh, complementary pathways, and especially when we're talking about labor and um, let's say community sponsorship. Um, I can remember an example from Sweden at one point, there was a, a small municipality that just created a program and that was also kind of in partnership with refugees when we talk about innovation to create role for uh, refugees to become a, a teacher assistants in some of the schools and all of a the sudden they start having role and staying in, the, in this small municipality. The school in the municipality did not have enough student, and then all of a the sudden they start kind of a refugees family coming. They just revived the whole uh, um, town in there and then you start seeing other municipalities in Sweden start asking for refugees uh, with that way. I think here also in Canada, one of the uh, um, uh, the people that were resettled to uh, um, a small town or kind of you know a bit bordering town here around Toronto called the uh, Niagara Falls, and and again where uh, some of the uh, small factories or family-owned businesses were struggling to uh, actually have people to uh, move in, so it, that also that they, they got refugee, and then you know it just created another. Uh, a layer of um, not only basically the, the, that business supported the refugee, but actually the refugee supported the municipalities in a way. Um, right now, I think with labour Mobility Pathway or community sponsorship, a lot of conversation happening among the private citizen and the businesses. But I think, you know, I, I hope and I see it in, in, in kind of in the near future, that this, com- this kind of a conversation expands to uh, municipalities and city to be involved and, and basically to try, try resettling refugees and having the community to be involved in resettling refugees, um, not only in a way of doing good, but also in a way of saving those cities and municipalities that definitely in desperate, and especially in countries like Canada or kind of in Europe, Um, that are wanted to have a younger population and people to come and uh, uh, play a role in building those cities and keeping them alive.
0: Thanks so much, Mustafa. So we'll turn it now to um, a final round of questions. Uh, Andrew, uh, we'll start with you. And just to remind everyone, the the final question that has been posed is what the human costs of some of these policies have been and how those can be balanced against um, the the sort of demands for more orderly um, migration channels.
1: Yeah, I, I I think the the key comes in thinking in both an and rather than than exceptions, right? I mean, rather than than either or. That said, I mean, let me say that there is always a risk that if we don't take political considerations into account, the things that we want to see happen can be brushed away very quickly. And so there's a there's a huge tension here. And I say this as someone you know, who sits in a very political city, and so we're sort of attuned to this. Um, but, it, you know, it, it, it is on those that sit outside of the political places to keep pushing, you know, because we're always balancing the politics, right? I mean, it, it, it's good for you for those of you who are sitting outside of capital cities, those of you in refugee-led organizations, to keep pushing for what is ideal on this um, and what should happen. Um, uh, but that said, I think there's always a calculation. I mean, what we saw on Friday in the US with, with the decision not to raise the refugee cap, even though that was later rescinded on Friday night, and we'll see some ri- rise probably later on, is a reflection of sort of chaos, what's perceived as chaos at the border, right? The inability to, to handle irregular flows much of which should be be asylum flows, right? I mean, and so there's a trade-off sort of, you know, with with at times with what we, with, with different aims and the politics get very complicated. That said, the best way of bringing these two together is there is a common interest on making sure that people get protection, that there are legal pathways through which people move, That protection is combined with other sorts of pathways, including labor and family reunification, so that we can begin to organize migration from places where people are trying to leave, either because of direct persecution or war or or state collapse in the case of Venezuela or sort of a a cocktail of, of complicated reasons, you know, in the case of Central America, Um, You know, direct persecution in in Myanmar with the Rohingya, you know, civil war and direct persecution in places like Syria. I mean, there are lots of reasons why people leave, right? Um, You know, how do we combine that, creating, structuring legal pathways so that it doesn't create the chaos, right, that then can create a backlash? And how do we think this in a layered way, both because it is better to give people protection closer to home, though never sufficient, I mean, you know, and we should not assume that it's an alternative, right? Protecting people in their home country is often impossible. Sometimes it's possible, but only possible for certain people, you know, in neighboring countries may be desirable for some people, but not for others, you know? And so we have to think about this as multiple approaches in which protection closest to home is possible, but all countries also have asylum systems that function and function well, right? I mean, that is sort of the that textured approach that goes from as close to home to as far as people need to go to be protected, right? I mean, that's what we wanna create alongside other pathways that people can use depending on what their need of protection is vis-a-vis other needs that they may have. And the more we create these legal pathways around the world, particularly from areas where people are most likely to leave to people places where people are most likely to land, the more we begin to structure this ahead of time, the more we also avoid the chaos that then creates the political backlash. And so I think it is in everyone's interest to think in those terms. I mean, how do you begin to create both in, the, in those who want to, to save and innovate around the protection regime, but also countries that are worried about you know, the political backlash? How do we begin creating these legal pathways, protection pathways, plus other legal pathways that are absolutely necessary that make this, that diffuse this as a political issue and make sure that people are protected?
0: Thanks so much, Andrew. I'll hand it over to Sion uh, for any uh, final brief comments on your side.
4: Uh, Thank you, uh, Susan. The human costs issue you raised is a very important one, including in the case of the African refugees, East African refugees, because uh, my reflection is the externalization has taken away the human aspect of protection. We tend to focus on numbers, more on numbers, and forgetting the fact that behind those numbers, there are people. And um, most of the strategies in this respect are designed to see the number of refugees decrease, stop, and so on. Now, this is taking us to a very dangerous road, in my opinion. It's taking away our attention from talking about prevention. And as Hannah uh, highlighted earlier, rather buying time, be it in Europe or in Africa so very briefly the solution in my opinion is having that difficult uncomfortable conversation between the european and the african actors particularly sit down in a table and do that and in this respect for instance the africa eu strategy negotiations which are happening currently provide a very good opportunity because we are discussing a very Vast areas, you know, from job creation, peace, security, development, migration and mobility, everything, you know, migration, forced displacement doesn't stand by itself. It needs a very comprehensive approach. Thank you. And back to you,
0: uh, Susan. Thank you, Tion. And Hannah, brief final, uh, final thoughts.
3: Thank you. Yes, maybe I'll uh, go back to the question you asked uh, Susan in relation to the future of the EU-Turkey deal. Uh, yes, I mean there's a there's a, this imminent potential also changes in some of the key leaders in the member states. Um, there's also this kind of nervousness about uh, what um, Turkey is doing in the, the Greek and, and Cypriot territorial waters um, and, and those kind of elements and at the same time uh, we do see that this is going to be a trend uh, in the future, these kind of deals. We see only more deals being our agreements being pursued uh, with other uh, North African countries. So this is likely to be a, a key part of the architecture uh, of the future and also because there's such great nervousness when um, numbers starts to rise uh, again. We saw nervousness of about 700 um, people, for example, taking boats uh, from either Belgium to France to the United Kingdom. We saw lots of nervousness when the numbers started to rise in the Canary Islands. And see, and so in that respect, um, yeah, we will see that this that the EU leaders will continue to invest in that also because we've been debating for the last six years what to do on the internal side and and we have still not come to an agreement on how to deal with those who arrive um on eu soil and and what we could do in, in terms of solidarity in in that response and in that respect really as the question poses investigating and paying due attention to the human cost and uh, this is not only a game of strategy when it comes to how we deal with third countries this is also a ban, um dealing with human lives and making sure that we do not store them somewhere while we're trying to figure out how to process claims more quickly, um, really investing on one hand to see, making sure that those uh, in Turkey have uh, a protection status, that they can access de facto the labor market, which many can't, that children can access schools uh, so that these people can still dream about the future for their children is really crucial. Uh, And the same thing, of course, in the Greek islands, uh, we really have to make sure that we uh, have systems in place that can deal with the long waiting time some of these decision processes sometimes take. So this is really crucial. So thanks for that question.
0: Thank you, Hannah. And thank you to everyone for your questions. Uh, there were quite a few, so I apologize that we weren't able to get through all of them. We got through as many as we could. Um, I want to note that the audio from our conversation today will be available on MPI's website tomorrow. Um, and as we noted at the beginning, this uh, this webinar marks the launch of a new initiative that MPI is, um, is operating together with the Robert Bosch Stiftung Beyond Territorial Asylum, making protection work in a bordered world. And the the link for more information on that is on your screen now and also in the chat. Uh, thank you so much again to all of our excellent panelists for the insights that you shared today and for engaging in this discussion with us, and also particularly to Otilia bouts at the Robert Bosch Stiftung for joining us this morning and this afternoon, um, whichever time zone you might uh, might be in as you're listening today. Um, thank you to everyone, and uh, we look forward
1: um, to continuing this, uh, this conversation over the next 3 years thank you